Walk into Manchester's Arndale Market. The first thing that hits you is the smell. It's an intoxicating cocktail of leather, old books, incense sticks, fruit and veg, oranges, apples and pears, and the rich gloss from the nail bar. And then the hustle and the bustle of the people, each with a story to tell. Today, we hear one of those stories and meet the longest serving tenant of the Arndale Market. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello, I'm Daryl Morris, and Yoshi Herman is the editor of Manchester's quality newspaper delivered directly to your inbox, The Mill. Hello, Yoshi. Lots and lots happening this week. Lots to get our teeth into and some big news about trains as well. But we're also going to meet another of Manchester's great characters this week. Yeah, that's right. There are some really big stories going on. But the piece that Jack's written about um, from the Arndale market is a sort of classic mill story where we meet someone who is a fabric of the city, in the fabric of the city, and has a really lovely personal story that you might not generally hear if you, you know, or, or read if, if you're reading the newspapers. So I think it's a really nice one. Lovely. Okay, more on that shortly. Let's get you brief, though, with everything going on this week. And it's been a big week in Greater Manchester. We'll get to the inquest into the death of Yusuf Mackey shortly and some really significant announcements about the future of the region's railways as well. Let's start there. And it all stems from this promise from the Prime Minister in July 2019. I want to be the Prime Minister uh, who does with Northern Powerhouse Rail what we did for Crossrail in London. And today, I am going to deliver on my commitment to that vision with a pledge to fund the Leeds to Manchester route. OK, Yoshi, take us back to the beginning on this one. What is Northern Powerhouse Rail? It is an enormous proposed project which is supposed to massively increase the capacity and the quality of rail networks between the main big northern cities. So the idea was we need much better connections between Liverpool to Manchester to Leeds and then to Hull if we really want the north to be a proper economic counterweight to London in the way that some German regions are, in the way that some French regions are. We have one of the most unbalanced economies in the world, or certainly in Europe. And that is partly because it's actually pretty cumbersome to run a business in one northern city, have employees coming from another, even though the distances between them, you know, by the standards of, you know, American cities, the distances between our northern cities are actually really small. So the proposal was, if we link them up together, they'll have a much better chance of growing um, economies that can start to compete with the ecosystem in the southeast. And as you heard in the clip, Boris Johnson declared that this was going to happen. He, he, he made a really firm commitment. And what we're going to hear today is the integrated rail review. What's expected to happen is that this big project is going to be watered down quite significantly. There won't be a new Manchester to Leeds line, which was an absolutely crucial part of this because it would increase capacity on a really, really busy and old fashioned line. That means that there won't be a stop in Bradford on that line, which was going to be a huge thing for Bradford. It's supposed to be the country's worst connected city. It's also one of the country's youngest cities. And the idea from policymakers has always been there are a lot of people in Bradford who might want to work in Manchester or who might want to work in Leeds, but are currently put off because 
frankly, you have to drive if you want to get there quickly. I mean, the fact that it currently takes on a railway line 40 minutes to get from Bradford to Leeds is absolutely insane. So what you find in the research is that lots and lots of people are making car journeys on that on that route. Instead, the government says it's going to upgrade its existing Transpennine route. I think that will be a positive development. But when a lot of the concerns in the north are about capacity and overcapacity, meaning unreliability, um, the lack of a new route is, is disappointing to a lot of people. And there's a lot tied up in this, isn't there, Yoshi? Politically, economically, arguably socially, and there's been a big response. What's the local response been? Among sort of policy people and people who know the importance of infrastructure for economic development, there's massive disappointment. Local leaders are really angry, particularly in Bradford, which is the big loser here. As I said, it's one of the worst connected cities. And, you know, a lot was pinned on this. There's also a lot of anger in places like Sheffield and Leeds, which were going to get the eastern leg of the HS2 line, um, which is going to go up from Birmingham into Sheffield onto Leeds. That's now not going to happen. There will be a high speed rail between uh, Leeds and, and, and Sheffield, but they won't get that link up from Birmingham and therefore the much faster connection to London. Obviously, I think we need to acknowledge there are also people who didn't believe in the HS2 project and who felt that that eastern line, you know, was going to run through old habitats that, that we shouldn't be disturbing or people, particularly in Manchester, who feel like actually what we need to do is electrify and increase capacity across Greater Manchester within our network rather than wasting, you know, in their minds, billions of pounds on HS2. So I wouldn't say it's entirely one way the reaction. The HS2 line that's coming to Manchester is still supposed to be going ahead, although given that the government's just broken its big promise on Northern Powerhouse Rail, you know, you have to start to wonder, will will that line that comes up from Birmingham via crew, will that actually ever get to Manchester. But currently, that's going ahead. The eastern leg isn't. Northern Powerhouse Rail has been massively downgraded. And for people who think infrastructure and transport are a big part of the solution in the north, a big part of making the Northern Powerhouse happen, you know, there's just massive disappointment. And those views were articulated, weren't they, in some newspaper front pages, an alliance of newspapers across the north, Yoshi. Yeah, exactly. The Manchester Evening News and a whole bunch of Northern papers all got together and made a really funny front page about uh, train spotting with the sort of front of the novel and, and essentially a bunch of gags saying, you know, choose the North and where the hell is this transport investment that we were supposed to get? I thought it was a really good campaign, actually, because it's very easy when the government is about to do something that it's effectively you know, a letdown of the North. It's very easy to brief that to journalists down South who don't really get it. You spin the positive parts of your announcement. The journalists don't really know what's going on about the negative ones because they haven't been covering it. And, you know, it it doesn't raise the political pressure on the government. But in this instance, I think these Northern newspapers have really managed to just shoot it up the agenda because it just shows how much it matters to, to certainly these newspapers. You know, you sometimes just have to wait an awful long, long, time because the unreliability in in Northern Rail is is, is really bad. And clearly there's a lot of overcapacity and um, this is a disappointment in that respect. Okay. Elsewhere as well, Yoshi, the long-delayed inquest into the death of the Manchester schoolboy Yusuf Mackey reached its conclusion this week. You've been following this closely, haven't you, in the inquest, hearing the evidence. For those just come into this story, Yoshi, just remind us what we're talking about. Yusuf Mackey was a 17-year-old schoolboy 
from Burnage, who died after a highly disputed stabbing in March 2019. We've spoken about this on the podcast before. There were two boys who were with Mackie at the time, one of whom admits stabbing the knife into his chest, into his heart. That boy, Josh Molnar, was acquitted at a criminal trial in 2019 of murder and of manslaughter. The other boy was not charged with with those sorts of offences, but is obviously a, you know, a key witness in this case. The inquest heard evidence all of last week from Monday to Friday, and some of that, you know, we were in, in, in the courtroom for. The coroner was very keen to point out that it's not a criminal trial, that an inquest is a fact-finding exercise, that it is got a very different objective. It's about establishing, you know, how someone died and where someone died, when someone died. And After that week of evidence, including evidence from those two boys who I mentioned, the outcome of the inquest is a strange one. It's a narrative conclusion, which is what a coroner does when they can't sort of be satisfied that there is the right level of evidence for other findings. So clearly people linked to the Mackie family, you know, were hoping that this would be ruled an unlawful death, you know, that, that, that Yusuf Mackie was unlawfully killed. I think the legal teams for some of the other interested parties, including those two boys, were suggesting to the coroner an outcome of accidental death would be more appropriate. In the end, the coroner didn't find that the evidence rose to the right level for either of those. She went through in sort of excruciating detail what we had heard. And in her summing up yesterday, she basically said, you know, I have to be satisfied on the balance of probability, which is a different standard in these. I have to be satisfied to that level that it was unlawful killing or that it was accidental or that it was one of these other outcomes. And she actually just said it was so unclear what happened in the seconds before his death. We know what happened in the minutes before. We know what happened in the hours before. It's those seconds just before Mackie died. We don't have CCTV for that. We don't have a particularly clear account um, from Chowdhury and from Molnar, whose account of, of exactly what they saw, you know, has changed from that first night until now. And therefore... Alison Much, who's the senior coroner, said that Mackie died from, and I quote, complications from a stab wound, the precise circumstances of which cannot on the balance of probabilities be ascertained. So she returned this narrative conclusion, which just means that instead of saying, giving sort of one of these um terms that we're used to hearing after an inquest, one of these findings, what the coroner does is they explain from the evidence they have heard how this person died. And that is what happened here. And it's obviously a huge disappointment for Mackie's family who, you know, have always seen this as an, uh, an inquest that should end with, with a verdict of, of unlawful killing. But I think, you know, Jade, who is Yusuf Mackie's half-sister, she feels like she's done everything she can. Uh, she said she was proud of her legal team. She said she had done sort of right by her half-brother by, you know, fighting to, to make sure the inquest went ahead, hiring a very high-powered set of lawyers to help her. Um, I think she feels like she's sort of left it all out there. And, um, you know, she's obviously devastated, but this is the outcome of this inquest and this sort of two and a half year saga is in some senses, certainly in the legal sense, is probably over. 
Okay. A very difficult and emotional week for the family, no doubt. You can read more on the inquest into the death of Yusuf Mackey uh, by subscribing at manchestermill.co.uk. And finally, Yoshi, there is a counter-terror case being led out of Greater Manchester this week, isn't there? What's happening? Yeah, that's right. A counter-terrorism case being run from, you know, Manchester, but actually all about Liverpool. This is the Remembrance Sunday bombing attack. You know, the first thing we heard about this was soon after 11am on Sunday, there was this taxi that was on fire outside Liverpool's Women's Hospital, which is a really well-known and sort of well-loved institution in the city. It took a, quite a while before we really could start to understand what had happened. It turned out that there was a taxi driver who had somehow survived this explosion, even though it happened within his own taxi. And he sort of is seen in this CCTV crawling away from the taxi. It turns out that the person who had blown up the taxi was an asylum seeker called Ahmad El Suilamin, who was born in Iraq and who had various um, unsuccessful attempts to get asylum in, in, in Liverpool. Then he had converted to Christianity at the cathedral, interestingly, which is where the Remembrance Sunday service was and also where a lot of people speculated was the real target for the bombing, although there's actually no evidence of that at the moment. So first we got a sort of day of, you know, real, uh, I wouldn't say panic quite, but massive concern and alarm in Liverpool because... You know, it was felt that there might be a terror cell operating here. You know, there were three arrests of other men who lived on the same street um, as Suleiman. Then there was arrest of another man in the morning. They were arrested on the in, under the Terrorism Act. So you've got sort of fears emerging there of a terror cell, and actually. The police have now, you know, let all the, all of those men go, and they've said that their explanations make sense. They have not been charged with any offences. So the picture has changed. Now it starts to look like something very different, possibly like a lone wolf type of thing. There seems to be evidence within one of the properties that Sweelman rented that he was preparing materials for a bomb actually for months. So, you know, we, we might be looking at a very kind of amateurish type of um, attack here where someone's, you know, got a improvised device that they're making at home without any help, without any um, sort of connections or, or advice from abroad or, or, or that kind of thing. So it's going to take a while before this emerges. Clearly, when you've got a case where there is an individual bomber, no one else has been charged, that bomber is, you know, now deceased. You know, it's one of those cases where it might take a while before um, the authorities are really able to say with any sort of um, credibility or any sort of confidence um, what really was going on here, what motivated this and um, what the what the sort of background circumstances were about this, you know, Christian conversion and that type of thing. So we'll be keeping an eye on it. And you can check out um, the post in Liverpool, our sister website, which has got a really interesting account of um, of Sunday and we'll be doing further reporting on this. Okay, Yoshi, for now, thank you. Markets aren't the centre of communities like they used to be. But they're still there, nestled in our towns and city centres. Walk through Bolton on a Thursday or Rochdale on a Monday and you'll be sure to bump into the hustle and bustle as it spills into the streets around. And then the people, some of them born into it, some of them drawn into it plucky entrepreneurs and local characters, all with a story to tell. At Manchester's Arndale Market, Ela Patel, the market's longest-serving tenant. Her stall, Asia Crafts, has stood through an IRA bomb, the fall of the high street and a viral pandemic. The mill's Jack Dulhanty went along to meet her. Jack, hi. Hello, you're right. 
the first thing that hits you when you walk into Arndell Market? It's like the the cross pollination of cuisines, I would say. A Viet Shack, which is a Vietnamese place. You've got like burgers, pizza, lots of nail varnish smells. You can somehow smell wigs just by looking at them sometimes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's the first thing that hits you. And also there's like tons of neon lights and colour and people cutting around so that's what strikes me normally it's a tapestry of life isn't it yes. and it's got a life of its own Arndale Market has quite a quite a story mm, yeah well it's been open god knows how long it's, as you say it's gone through a bombing which like the rest of them Arndale well Arndale Centre generally has but no it's a very storied place with lots of people who've been there a very long time like Ela. and she originally from India Ela. Yes. how did she arrive in the UK from what I gathered from our conversation, it was part of a arranged marriage of some kind. Her parents had basically found her a husband and she had moved there to be with him. He'd been like educated in England, a little bit in Kenya as well. And then she flew over in 1978, met him at snowy Heathrow. He threw a coat over her and they took a coach back to Manchester. How did she find it? Uh, she hated it at first mostly because it was cold. But she also mentioned, although we didn't get into it, that the people were different then as well in 1978. And then at first she didn't take a job. She just looked after her and her husband's children. And then she took a job as a dinner lady a little bit later on when money was tight. Her husband ended up being a postman for about 32 years. And so the inspiration for the business Mm. that took her to Arndale Market came when she went back to India, actually. Is that right? Yes. So it would have been her first time back in 10 years. She was actually... The purpose of the trip was to introduce her children to their grandparents. And then while she was there, she basically saw the sort of bustling markets of a home country, incense wafting about, turned to her husband and was like, no one sells this in Manchester. I think she'd always had a desire to open her own business, but they never really had the money to like open a shop. Then we went to India, actually, to took children to see the grandparents and all that after 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And um, we saw stuff like this and incense. So my husband said, do you want to open the business, you know? And then they opened a stall on Exchange Square. Is she responsible for bringing incense to Manchester? Couldn't say. (laughs) She really could be, right? She really could be. And she has seen some incredible change through the time that she has been stood there on her stall in the centre of Manchester. Yeah, from back when it was what people used to call an orange floor, the orange floored market, which I think the original market had an orange floor. She was called like Lady in the Sari and Incense Lady. She was actually poached from Exchange Square, which is like... That's surely worth a story somehow, like the <laughs> Roman market managers trying to pick up interesting people to join their place. He was called Jim Dempsey, and he approached her. She was only about three months into a time at Exchange Square, and he was just like, I want you on my market. I want you in my market. So I said, I'm not coming to Andel Market. They said, at least come and see, I will give you a nice talk. He brought me here. Oh, wow. He took me out of the connection. How come that happened? I don't know. He just said, I love your stuff you're selling. You're such a lovely woman. I thought the rent will be too much. I can't afford because it was really tough at that time. So he said, no, come and see me. I'm going to give you the very beautiful stall. Whatever you want, I'm going to give you, he said. He gave her a stall that she described as lovely. And then obviously she would have been there in 1986 or she would have been there 10 years until it was destroyed by the bomb. That day was bad, very bad. I got hurt because we were just, we told, they told us to move. And we just moved there and I was, we were standing there and the whole window collapsed. 
and I got hurt. Oh wow! At that time as well, I got hurt because we were standing and it was just like bits of shattered bits of shattered glass. Yeah, yeah. I had to go to hospital and things like that. You know. Oh, and through that time, she'll have seen some changes, people, stories passing by. It kind of bends the mind a bit, doesn't it? Thinking about how many people have passed her path. Yeah, she must have seen millions of people. Mm. Which, I mean, everyone sees millions of people, but seeing millions of people just in one spot for that long would be crazy. Mm. So having been through all of that, she now faces new challenges, right? Yes. Well, if you ask her, she'll just say that business is up and down as it's always been. But I think the high street more broadly, and as you touched on earlier, markets in town centres and city centres are growing a little bit stagnant. They're becoming kind of as I say in the story, just incubators for like a new street food vendor or a new hospitality operator who wants to basically test out the business model before they commit to buying an actual property to house a business in, which is great because people love that and it draws more people into city centres who wouldn't normally come in, but the people who've been there from the start can in some cases get overlooked. Like if you look at places like Swinton Precinct, for example, or Sale any of those sorts of town centres, the sort of old guard are struggling now when it comes to competing with these places that just want to sell, like, natural wine and burgers. Mm. Although it does seem like Ila has a clientele, right? Mm. She has a customer base that are quite loyal to her as well. Yeah, she's lucky. Well, I say she's lucky. It's not really luck. It was planned that she has her own niche in selling incense and she has suppliers in India and a few suppliers in the UK and when I was asking her about that, she was saying, like, you can get stuff from me that you just can't get anywhere else. So she definitely, she's cornered the market <laughs> in that case, I suppose. <laughs> Literally. Almost. Yes. How did you meet her? I met her through chance, really. I hate Pret-a-Manger, which I know is an odd way to start this story. But <laughs> when I was on my break from work, I kept going to Pret-a-Manger and I was like, I can't keep doing this. So I started taking like long walks around town looking for new places and I ended up in the Arndale market. And then I went to this little corner shop that was selling like nuts and Turkish delight and stuff. And I saw these glass cases full of baklava and I was like, oh, I'll get a slice of that. I think in like some hunger induced stupor, I was like, oh my God, this is the best bakla- like baklava I've ever eaten in my entire life. <laughs> it wasn't actually that good. But when I went back, I was actually looking to interview Ela's employee because Ela, as it happens, owns this little corner shop. And I was asking her about <laughs> baklava and looking generally odd, like like I was just some pastry merchant trying to get in on something. And she was like, no, we buy it wholesale. And I was like, do you own this? And she was like, no, that lady is over there. So then I just sort of sauntered over to Ela and I was like, hello, I heard you own that shop over there. I just wanted to ask you some questions. And then we just started talking. And then she brought her up. She was like, oh, yeah, do you not know I'm like the longest standing Arndale market? tenant and I was like oh that's lucky (laughs) so So she wears that right as a badge of honour she wears that Mm. with great pride and I guess there's something about you having gone to a market like that 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 is perhaps what they're hoping for right that people become sick of the chains and end up looking for something that's a bit different yeah I mean that's the good thing about markets is they don't really attract big brands and they attract like people who want to sell more niche stuff like there's a few places in the Arndale market selling like little figurines and stuff like that and it, it allows people who want to get into business in a smaller scale way to make a start. Very interesting. Jack, thank you. Thank you.
Okay, Yoshi, take us into the Mill Newsroom, my friend. What's happening this week? What's happening this week is we are preparing a story about something that I've sort of been getting emails about for a year and a half, which is the Rye Bank Fields in Charlton, which is this incredibly highly contested development. There is a by-election in Charlton happening this week, Thursday, although by the time most people listen, that probably already will have happened. And anyway, the main issue in that by-election is this Rye Bank Fields development which is a former playing field owned by MMU that is, um, you know, is going to be it's going to be developed there. They're going to sell it to sell it to to be developed. So that's a really big one. Danny's been down in Charlton spending time with the different candidates and trying to understand what Rybank Fields is all about and something that I've been sort of wondering about for ages. So that's going to be coming out you know, quite soon. I've also been looking at a sort of draft version of our print edition, which is coming out next month, which looks absolutely amazing. I mean, it's it's sort of mushroom from this tiny little thing. It was going to be four pages, I think. It's now 54 pages. So loads and loads of our stories from the past year. And it'll have one um, big new one, which will be our interview with uh, Sir Richard Lees, our profile of Sir Richard Lees. Um, So that's really cool. And we've actually got a new sort of one-day-a-week writer um, who's doing his journalism course. He's called Jack. Jack Walton got another Jack, and he's a really nice writer. He is studying at, um, in, in one of the colleges in, in, in Manchester doing his NCTJ sort of journalism training. But he's going to be joining the team on Wednesdays. Um, he's already written a couple of really good things. Um, he filed something lovely last night. So that'll be a new name for people to start reading. Um, Jack Walton, he's a, he's a cracker. Great stuff. We'll look forward to that. And every week on the podcast, we give you something to do, see, look at, read, watch in and around Greater Manchester. What's going on from your end, Yoshi? Well, my first recommendation is actually a rival of ours in a way. It's another podcast. It's called The Northern Agenda. And, you know, it's well in the spirit of the mill to always recommend, uh, you know, articles and long read from other newspapers and other places. Whenever we find something good, we always recommend it. And I think the Northern Agenda is worth a listen this week. It's hosted by a former Yorkshire Post journalist called Rob Parsons, who was actually at the Evening Standard when I was there a long, long time ago. What he does is he gets on the sort of political correspondence and transport correspondence of some of the big northern newspapers owned by Reach PLC, so like the Liverpool Echo, the Manchester Evening News, the Newcastle Chronicle. You know, it's sometimes really interesting when there's a big northern news event to hear from these different correspondents because, you know, some of them have been covering it for 10 years. I think Jen Williams is like, you know, a really excellent correspondent and she she really knows some of this transport stuff incredibly well so i would really recommend listening to their stuff this week i know that they will be doing an episode on northern powerhouse rail and hs2 they did one a couple of weeks ago that was good so yeah head over to uh, the northern agenda podcast good stuff and there's, a, there's an art fair happening in manchester this weekend as well yoshi is that right yeah, Tom Hetherington, who's one of uh, the Mills members, organises the Manchester Art Fair, which opens this weekend. There's actually an opening night on Friday, but it's mostly open on the weekend. It's a real attempt to sort of generate more of an arts market in Manchester because it's just been a thing that the city has slightly struggled with. There are commercial art galleries, but there's never been like a really strong art market up here. So, and Tom Hetherington is trying to change that. I think he's trying to give the city a bit more sort of confidence around 
around buying and selling art. So there'll be lots of stuff there. I'm sure some of it would be great, some of it would be terrible, but um, it'd be well worth a visit for a lot of people. I think it costs £5, or if you're a Mill member, dig out one of our recent emails and you'll see that we're um, offering free tickets for that. We're also publishing on the Mill, um, if you're if you're a member, a lovely piece by Phil Griffin, who's one of our sort of, you know, one of our best writers, really. And he has written a 2,000-word piece about the different art galleries and the different commercial sort of art spaces in the city, places where you can buy art, and not just, you know, paintings, but photographs and lithographs and woodcuts and everything else. And, yeah, if you're a Mill member, that's well, well worth a read, just because Phil Griffin is always worth reading. Manchester Art Fair uh, this weekend, it's at uh, Manchester Central, so well worth going to that, I think. Okay, good stuff. My nods for Bury this week, or slash Bury. They are Greater Manchester's Town of Culture this year, and they're celebrating on Saturday by opening up loads of their local landmarks and little jewels in their crown, including the Met, an iconic music venue, the Fusilier Museum, uh, the Millgate Shopping Centre as well, and a whole load of other areas and bits and bobs around the town are opening up to people for free tours and free access across the day. You can get all the listings at visitberry.com. It's going to be a big, big, big day in the town on Saturday as they celebrate that moment of them becoming Greater Manchester's town of culture. Really worth a visit, I think. Okay, that's it from us for now. Yoshi, thank you. Jack, thank you as ever as well. Please do like and subscribe to the Manchester Weekly wherever you get your podcasts and help other people to find it too. Thank you for your support so far. We love doing this and you know the deal, we can't do it without you. And don't forget, plenty more news, events and stories from the city in the Mill newsletter. You can get that delivered directly to your inbox by subscribing at manchestermill.co.uk. 